Welcome everybody to another episode of Return Eye Character podcast. I've got Walt Wackowicz with me today, uh, author, former CEO of a large real estate company, and just uh, a very interesting man that has a lot to bring uh, on the subject of leadership per uh, our focus as a fund. Our fund focuses on allocating capital purely on the basis of our understanding of leadership's character. And so to have an expert in the room with us today is a, is, is a gift. Um, thank you so much for taking time to be with us, Walt. Yeah, it's awesome to be with you. Really yeah. awesome. Thank you. Well, well, I always like for, I mean, for me, when I get to know somebody, it's always nice to start with context, um, where, where you grew up, um, what your childhood was a little bit like, and and how you got to where you're, you are today. And then I'd love to transition a little bit into, into your, into your learnings, which was laid out in the book that you, you wrote. So tell us about, uh, how you first showed up in the world and how you got to where you are today. <laughs> well, I grew up in, um, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I'm still am while I live in Denver, I still am a avid, uh, Steeler fan, as you can, as you can imagine. And, I was the grandson of uh, European immigrants. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, um, I, I talk a lot about leadership and we'll, we'll chat more about leadership as time goes on. But mine was really molded by uh, so many things, not the least of which that I always like to tell people that I hit the parent lottery. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we didn't have financial wealth, um, but there was always a wealth of love and support in the room. And that's what I grew up with. And that, you know, had a huge influence on me, Dan. You know, I, I, I uh, went to college at Penn State University. Um, and then I'm on the board of Penn State today. So really, I, yeah, it's still with me. That's and um, yeah, and um, I, I spent uh, my the beginning part of my career with Price Waterhouse. So I was an auditor and a tax person. And then I went to Harvard Business School and kind of lear learned a little bit about the, the ropes in, in, in B school, great place to go. And then I decided to go into the real estate business. I took a job in Los Angeles with a company called Trammell Crow Company, um, very large uh, development firm, and was building um, warehouses at the ports of Long Beach and Los Angeles, really gotten in that piece of the business, uh, very much a niche business at the time. And, um, and after that, I went to work for a startup by the name of Prologis. One named that at the time, but we changed our name to Prologis. Uh -huh. That's the company everybody would know today. And, um, you know, I moved up the ranks there um, in the company and ultimately, and we'll get to this story, I'm sure, but yeah. ultimately became the CEO. And, you know, throughout my career, I, I, I just have become more and more intrigued about what good leadership is. Um, and I retired about 10 years ago and today I do a number of things around leadership, most of which are centered around really trying to impact others in a positive way. Um, I do that both in the inner city, um, where the group I'm involved with is trying to lift up the lives of urban youth um, through character mentoring and, and leadership development. And I do that um, in the business community where I have, as you mentioned, I've written, a, I've written a book on influence. I believe that um, one, of the, um, uh, one of the things we're called to do as leaders is to be influential, and I call it transfluence, which actually in the book stands for transformative influence. 
And I try to speak into the minds of, of leaders and other people um, in the business community um, through actually shows like this. Right. And uh, through through my own, I have a, my own LinkedIn live show um, called Off the Rack, where I interview leaders as well and through blogs and through speeches and through the, those sorts of things. And I keep myself busy doing that. I also sit on three corporate boards. I sit on my university board. And, um, you know, I do a number of different things like that as well. So so I'm wearing a lot of different hats after retiring as the CEO of a, of a large public company. And it's a it's a lot of fun. Well, and you you forgot to you forgot to mention your first your most recent accomplishment, becoming a grandfather. Oh, last... yeah. <laughs> yep. yep. I became a grandfather last week. Wow. So it's now it's now um, I think it's 10 or 11 days in the tooth. <laughs> All right. Well, that's fantastic. I love that. Um, well, you know, one of the things that I listened to, uh, some of your podcasts and, and learned a little bit about your book and, uh, everything really resonated with me. And I was hoping that you could take us through, um, some of the, you know, the key principles I, I have roughly four or five key principles that I took from it. Um, but I know you probably know them by heart, but I would love for you to not just say them, but to give us examples of in your career where you kind of learned that lesson enough to be able to inspire you to actually put a talent in a book and, and, and give it to the rest of the world. Um, I, in your first one, your first lesson was trust, you know, that you, that you put forward. Um, could you could you just talk talk to us a little bit about the book? Talk to us about the four key four or five key things that uh, you write about and and help us under, unpack that. I, I believe that trust. I like to say is the currency of business. Um, in my book, I talk about Howard Schultz at Starbucks saying that transparency is the currency of business, and I I actually believe that too. But I think transparency is uh, you know really is one of the things that creates trust. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about an experience that happened to me, um, that really, I, I would say inspired me to write the book and, and that experience, um, when I tell you the experience, I think you'll understand it, um, a little bit more, especially this word trust. Um, so I, I had plenty of things in my career that, you know, influenced the way that I thought about leadership, but the most important thing happened, um, was a challenge that I faced um, during the financial crisis in 2008. And um, up until that point, I, I was the number two person at uh, Prologis. So I was the president chief operating officer and I had risen through the ranks as a regional VP, CFO, et cetera. How big was and, the company roughly? Oh, the, well, uh, the, <laughs> well, it was a startup company when I joined it in 1994. By the time I became CEO, we had $50 billion in assets. Okay. So we were probably, um, you know, number 200 or 250 or so in the Fortune, five, uh, Fortune 500. So and you're a publicly large, listed? Publicly listed company, New York Stock Exchange. Still is today. One of the largest companies on the New York Stock Exchange today. But for the first 15 years of the company, we were absolutely a darling on Wall Street. And, you know, we had a sound strategy. We had great people, terrific uh, brand, good board. Uh, market leader in our industry, et cetera. And, and, and I, I do believe a lot of that had to do with, with really good leadership. But then um, we, had, uh, we had a change at the top. 
And I was, at that time, I was promoted to president COO, and then I reported to the CEO of the company. And, um, you know, looking back on it, most people don't leave companies, they leave bosses. And um, I was, as I said, I was the president, my boss was CEO. And I loved the company, but I just couldn't reconcile with him what good leadership meant. I mean, he had just a different view of it. And on the one hand, um, you know, he was one of the most brilliant people I ever met. And on the other hand, I felt marginalized by his need to look brilliant. And um, many times I didn't feel listened to. Uh, many times I didn't feel trusted. I felt micromanaged. You know, many times I didn't feel like I agreed with the decisions, but no one was really listening. And um, most important thing is I wasn't being told the truth. Um, and I could see, that, you know, we could all see a change in the culture because the whole management team could see it. And um, we began to act in silos and we didn't communicate as a team. Um, we didn't talk in the open. You know, we made decisions behind closed doors. And frankly, it led to poor investment decisions. Very poor in 2006 and 2007. We put way too much debt on our balance sheet um, against the wishes of our CFO, but because our CEO didn't want to issue any equity at the time. And, and in the end, at the end of the day, those decisions cost the company dearly. And when the Great Recession hit in 2008, we were ill-prepared. And um, I resigned in January 2008 because I went to the board and I said, look, I, I cannot work in a management team that doesn't trust its, itself, if you will, or you know, where, the, where we don't trust the CEO is the bottom line. And um, interestingly enough, our stock was at an all-time high at the time. This is, again, January 2008, which at the time, our market cap was, I don't know, $20 billion, something like that which equated to a stock price of $72 a share. It hit an all-time high around then. And from the outside looking in, we still looked pretty good. But from the inside looking out, we were a disaster waiting to happen. And I didn't know how much of a disaster it would be. Obviously, the S&P 500 was down close to 40% in 08. But our mistakes were manifest, uh, or manifest themselves in a much greater way and after I left the company in, in 10 short months, by November of 08, our stock was down 96%. We were the third worst performing stock in the S&P 500. Stock was at $2.20 a share. Uh, front page article in the Wall Street Journal, we're next. Um, you know, this darling of Wall Street has gone bad. And on November 8th, I got a call from the board of directors and, and they said, look, I, you were right a year ago. We're going to part ways with the CEO. And um, we'd like you to come back and run the company. And I, I got to tell you, I knew it would take a Herculean effort. Uh, but I agreed to do it because I had hired many of the people that were there. Um, and I could see that they had lost confidence in leadership. And I knew I had a great management team. And, you know, looking back on it, really crucible moments, I think, are the times when we're the strongest and, and um, where we have an opportunity to shine. Even though the funny thing is you, is you never wish it on anybody, including yourself. But yet, when you look back on it, especially if you, if you succeed, it turns out to be one of the best moments of your life. Um, and So what did you say to your team when you came in and <laughs> took over? I mean, like, you're... you're your stocks in the tanks, two bucks. Yep. Everybody thinks their head's on the chopping block. 
other firms are falling off the ship, right? You know, up in the edge of the world. What'd yeah. you say? Great, great question. I was, I would just tell you that I've never, I was never tested more in my life um, than at that point in time. But I tell you what, I had a great conversation um, with a guy named John Mack, who was the CEO of Morgan Stanley. And, you know, we were one of Morgan Stanley's big clients. So, you know, when, when the relationship banker called me up and said, Hey, um, you know, by the way, Morgan Stanley was supposedly going bankrupt at that time. Remember, remember. Goldman Sachs was going down and yeah. everything's going down. Right. <laughs> and so it was like, uh, you know, he goes, well, you know, I think you and John could kind of have mutual commiseration together, you know? And, um, but, you know, I said, you know, I said to my banker, I would love to talk to you. Let's, let's set something up. So we get on the line together and, um, I said, John, you know, I don't want to hear about TARP. I don't want to hear about all the stuff I read in the papers, you know, whether you're, you for this stuff, I don't want to hear about the, the fed and the treasury secretary calling you up. There were a bunch of rumors about putting Morgan Stanley together with JP Morgan, all that stuff. Trust me. Only thing I want to talk to you about is how you're dealing with your people right now, because we're in the midst of bankruptcy, supposedly, too. And you know what? It was really interesting. And I wrote about this in, in, in my book is he said, you know, well, I, and I asked him, I said, how do you create trust in the organization? Because I think that's the most important thing. And he goes, you're right. And he goes, you know what? Well, I run Morgan Stanley on the basis of what I call the three H's. And now he's got me intrigued. And I said, okay, well, you know, what is that? And he said, my three H's, and I believe the best leaders that are out there that create trust in their organizations do it through humility. They do it through honesty. And then he said, in this day and age, a banker needs to have a sense of humor. So he said, walk around with a sense of humor. So you know what? I thought about that. And I thought, wow, that's pretty powerful. And, but the more I thought about it, like I'm not really, I can make you laugh from time to time and I can put a smile on my face, but actually I don't think I'm really that humorous a person. Okay. Um, but what I think what he was really saying was when you walk into a room, you know, people have to look at you as somebody that they, they trust. And in some re regard, you know, being, you know, cracking a joke from time to time really lightens up the room. But I think what he really, really meant when I dug in deep, was this word human, humanness, okay, or heart. You know, leaders that have humanness, heart, right? And, and part of manifesting that is through humor. And so my three H's became humility, honesty, and heart. Um, humanity, I would say, underscored that word heart. And I talk a lot about that in the book. And what that means, and and I will, um, you know, I'll just tell you a, a real quick story. Then I'll end because I know you have other questions. But you know, you see, people, you know, I ask me all the time. You know, well, Walt, how did you turn around the company? I said, well, I didn't turn around the company. People in the organization turned around the company. What does a CEO do? A CEO, yes, he or she has to establish strategy, has to go to the board, has to get buy-in. They have to have some vision. I, I, I get all that. But at the end of the day, your job is to be like a cheerleader. Right. Or your job is to, you know, rile people up, focus them, get them 
excited and they will turn the company around. Okay. So, and that's what I was kind of struggling with, but I got to tell you, um, and I got all, uh, lots of stories, but I had a coach one time tell me that um, I basically needed to listen more and, you know, not do as much myself, but just try to listen to people more. Right. And they'll have all the answers. So, so there we were in a finance meeting and I'll end. I'll end no, no, no. But, you're doing great. You're, you're kind of okay. answering all the questions for me, making my job easy. I'd keep going. This is a great I'll story. story. A great story. So we're there in a finance meeting. We're late. It's late at night. I'm telling you, it's after midnight. I can't even tell you what time it is, but it's late. And, um, and this is about a month after I'd taken over just before Christmas. And, um, one of my finance directors looked at me in the room. There was probably 10 or 11 people in the room. And um, he said, uh, Walt, I got some bad news for you. I said, what's that? He said, I, I think we're going to blow our bond covenants by the first quarter. We're not going to, i.e., for your listeners, we're not going to hit our earnings. And, and therefore, we're going to fall below what it takes to keep the bonds current. And I said, okay, well, what does that mean? And he said, well, the means of bondholders can foreclose on us, basically. Um, and and therefore, we're going to have to declare bankruptcy. And I had been working with the company for 15 years. I left, but then I came back. And so I have all this, all this history of this, this company. I am, you know, all in trying to turn this doggone thing around um, with my employees. And I just got white as a ghost. Like, I didn't know what to say. And, I, and the only thing I said was, I go, I felt like I was going to faint. So I said, uh, guys, do you mind if I just leave the room for a little bit? I need a breath of fresh air. I mean, my face felt cold almost, you know. And so I walked down the hallway, turned, um, and I saw this chair. I felt like I was going to faint. I saw this chair. So I did as quickly as I could go over to the chair. I, I, I tried to get there to sit down, and I don't make it. And my head hits on the way down, hits the corner of the desk, splits my head open. And I'm laying there in a pool of blood for what turned out to be about 10 minutes, knocked out. Then I wake up and the first thing that hits me is, oh my God, all these people are still waiting in the room for me. After I figured out where I was for about 30 seconds, I had absolutely no idea. But you have blood all over your face. Blood on the carpet. And so then I get up and the pride in me kicks in. I go into the uh, washroom and try to suture it up. You know, it was a huge lump. Try, if I, and I get it to stop pleading. And I walk into the room. Now it's been 15 or 20 minutes. They're all waiting for me still. And I go, let's talk about this bankruptcy thing. And my, and my uh, CFO looks at me and he said, no, Walt, let's talk about that lump on your head. <laughs> so ugly. What is that, right? And I go, well, and I, and it, I just realized I was busted. I was just completely busted. And I looked around the room and I said, you know what? I said, I was hired to turn this company around. I was hired to have all the answers. But I just realized I don't have any answers. Hmm. And I'm not going to turn it around without you guys. And I said, um, the fact of the matter is you all have the answers. And it was a total vulnerable moment. And 
The next thing I could hear, and this is after probably 15 seconds, which seemed like eternity, is one of the finance guys said, don't worry, Walt, we got your back. And I, I realized that vulnerability can be an amazingly powerful tool for a leader. You want to create trust? That's how you do it. Now, don't get me wrong. People want to see you lead. Okay, you can't be so meek that people don't respect you. But it is a really uncomfortable thing for leaders. Um, and yet it can be so powerful because it's so human. And it's the ultimate expression of honesty. So, you know, by, by the way, by letting your guard down from time to time, you invite other people to do it. And that's where you get real communication. And so I, I think about people say to me all the time, well, well, okay, humility, honesty, heart. What does that mean? Well, I can't, you know, I can't tell you that if I went through all of the financial things that we did, um, buying back our bonds at 50 cents on the dollar and, you know, renegotiating our covenants with our lenders and doing an equity, doing three equity offerings over three years for a billion dollars a piece, all that stuff. Yeah. Did that help turn around the company? Damn right it did. Okay. But let you, you want to know what really turned around the company? It's episodes like I just talked about, which by the way, became folklore. Um, and people talked about it. You really? think those people in the finance committee meeting, you think they didn't go out and say, you're not going to believe what happened last night. <laughs> they did. And, and you know what? I was good with that. Yeah. Because I wanted to show people that I had a heart, that I listened, that I could, that I cared about communication, that I wasn't the person that was going to turn it around that they were, there were so many messages that came out of just that one situation, you know? And, and, and I think it showed our leadership team also um, something about what we were going to be. We weren't going to be a leadership team that was, that was untrusted, that lied, that, you know, we were, we were going to be a leadership team that was something totally different. And we needed to, Make sure our, our employees understood that. Does that make sense? Totally. Well, the other thing that's kind of stretched me is that, it, and I may have this wrong, but it sounds like it's like the first crucible of the company, right? You, you started off, you grew steadily, consistently, probably had some challenges, but this was a real live or die moment, which I would imagine bonded you and the team and reshaped the culture in a certain way, the fact that you got through it. Dan? Absolutely. And I can tell you the interesting thing was those same finance people went back to work with the CFO and they ultimately came up with a solution that was brilliant. I mean, it was absolutely brilliant. And we ended up sign, um, um, uh, selling our entire China operation and we sold about a half of our operation in Japan. When we sold half our operation in Japan, we booked, we were able to book a $300 million gain. Um, it was a book gain, but that book gain bought us time to, in essence, not blow our covenants. Right. And, and it, it actually brought, bought us three, uh, four quarters um, to, to then, because now the bondholders don't have you in that position. Now, now, 
you have, they have to negotiate with you because you booked this $300 million gain. And that gain lasts for four quarters uh -huh. uh, because it's always a four quarter look back on your covenant calculations. Uh -huh. Does that make sense? Yeah. It was brilliant. And it bought us some time to go and negotiate our covenants. And I didn't come up with, my point is, I didn't come up with that. My people came up with that. Our people came up with that, right? And why? Because they were empowered to. I mean, they were empowered to come up with it, right? They knew they had to. The gun was to their head. Right? But, but that's what I think. I think that's what good leadership is. And too many times leaders feel like they got to be the solution. They don't have to be the solution. They have to be the visionary in some respects. They have to point their people in the right direction. But their people have to trust them. And that's what I'm talking about in terms of building trust. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a... That's exactly what we look for in all our CEOs and leadership teams is if we could get behind the curtain and learn those types of stories, we'd be longing companies like yours all day long because uh, we believe it creates an enduring firm, not just a firm that's trying to meet an exit or meet a quarter, but trying to create a culture that lasts beyond them in many ways. Yes. Um, yes. And uh, uh, yeah, I, I, lo I love that. That's such a great story. <laughs> You know, so so out of that, I think we'd be remiss not to follow the story to its end uh, because it's, you know, you're in the trenches, come up with a solution with your team. What happens from there on out? Uh, you know, you mentioned in your book, core values, uh, attaching meaning to the company, you know, and what you do every day. Tell us a little bit how you did that and, and then eventually, you know, what, what the company did. These days, um, people will probably laugh at this because of everything written about ESG and the like. But um, back then, there weren't a lot of companies that were given back. Um, I mean, they, they, they did in a periphery way, I guess. But um, I really felt that um, we were in a position where our employees were sort of had a little bit, and especially in the beginning, had a little bit of a woe is me kind of attitude, which is to say, you know, I'm working for this company that is on the verge of bankruptcy. Are we going to make it? Oh, my goodness, you know? Right. And, and that tends to be a, it's an insular way of looking at things. And when I wrote the book Transfluence, I, I wrote about the most important thing that I think a leader can bring to the table is transformational influence, meaning that um, the world is not about you. It is about the influence that you can have on other people. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not just about the CEO. If everybody has that attitude, if everybody comes to work with the attitude that it's not about me, it's about how I can influence not only people around me, but people in my community, then you get out of your own shadow. And I talk a lot in the book about pride and fear. I think there, I think pride and fear are two of the biggest leadership blockers or influential or blockers, if you will, to your leadership journey that you can have. Why? Because both pride and fear in general have people looking at themselves. Like, you know, I'm either really fearful about this or I'm really prideful, you know, you know, we're the best and this, you know. And I think if, if you can get out of that, you get out of your own way, you start focusing on other people, um, then I think you can be wildly influential and I think you can be wildly successful. 
how do you change so, that within your culture then? How, how do you well, do that? I can I see within yourself, but how do you do it in, a, in an entire culture? You do it by providing opportunities for your people um, to, to do things outside of themselves. And we, we created a number of those opportunities. I mean, we, we, in fact, we, we didn't, we, we were this close to making it mandatory, but we did. <laughs> um, but we, we, you know, we get in front. Well, first of all, little things like the, our town hall meet meetings. Our town hall meetings were devoted, one third of our town hall meetings were devoted to the things that we did outside of Prologis, um, the difference that we were making in various communities throughout the world. And we were in it, we're over 100 cities um, globally. Right. <clears throat> so we're all throughout Europe, all throughout Asia. You know, I can remember my first time I went to Japan and I said, I said to my leaders in Japan, I said, listen, I want you guys to be giving outside. I mean, I want you to, you know, pour into the, your community. And, and the person in Japan said, oh, we don't do that in Japan. I said, well, what do you mean, Mike? His name's Miki, but, you know, Mike. I said, what do you mean, Mike? He said, uh, Japanese, um, you know, don't do those things in, in, in the community. And, and he started to explain to me that culturally, um, that, you know, it, it, it's different in Japan. They don't, somebody, if somebody's hurting, um, someone's homeless or something, you don't normally see that in Japan. Right. There's so much pride there and somebody would not let themselves ever get to that. And so therefore, you, you know, you don't, it's not something that a business would do to help that. I said, okay, well, what is important to you, Mike? And he said, Japanese are very clean people. I said, you're right. And I said, how about the communities that we're in? And he said, well, not all communities are as clean as they could be. And I said, well, okay, well, why don't we have a monthly cleanup day? We go to the communities that we're in and just clean up their city. And don't ask, don't ask any questions. Just, don't, just tell them we're coming to clean up and do it every month. He said, my employees would love that. And in France, in France, they said, we don't, the government takes care of everybody. We pay 70% taxes. The government takes care of everybody. We're not going to give any, any to everybody. I said, okay, what would be kind of cool from your perspective? And he said, well, I don't know. I said, what about bike races? Like you guys have the Tour de France. Isn't that a big deal? He said, yeah, that's a big deal. I said, what, what, why don't you guys put together a bike race um, and raise money, and then you just give it wherever you want to give it. I don't care. It doesn't need to be a charity. It could be an old folks home. I don't really care. Whatever. You know, but give it someplace. He's like, okay. Well, they started this race where they go from Marseille all the way up to Paris. And I think they're still doing it today. And they raise all this money. It's just amazing. And you know what? Their hearts are in it. And that's, a, that's what I'm talking about. It's like, you know, you got to get out of your own way. And you got to, as a leader, you got to emphasize the importance of that. And then in your town hall meetings, you spend a third of your time talking about it. You know, yeah, you talk about your earnings and yeah, you talk about what you could do better, but let's also talk about the things that we can do in this world that are outside of ourselves. Let's emphasize it, right? So, you know, that, and that's just one example. Um, but but I, I think that's what leadership is all about. That is, um, in my opinion, um, you know, you ask, that's how you make a transformative influence on people. That's how you get them to get out of their own way and not focus on themselves as much. Yeah, I love that story. Um, and it's so, 
it's so consequential because it's not just here in America. It's be, it's beyond and coming up with various different types of solutions in different cultural contexts yes. to tap the same part of the heart that, yes. you know, is so important. It's uh, there. It's there for all of us. It's it, just a little different. It's, you know, in the research that we base our um, analysis on, uh, it, it, they identified four characteristics of character, integrity, responsibility, forgiveness, and compassion. And what they found in the research is that those four characteristics are also found in every culture around the world. When, it's, mm -hmm. when they say character, when the definition of character comes up, those are the four characteristics that are to, to ring true, you know, cross-culturally, you know, yeah. uh, it's yeah. a universal understanding. And, yep. uh, and then they happen to be also characteristics that have now been proven to correlate to success, um, in, within organizations. Tell me, tell us about, finish the story. How did you, okay, you, you're changing culture, you're solving earth shattering uh, problems with your team. Where did it end up? How did you, and how long did you stay, um, I did it for four years. Um, and I have to admit, I was um, um, I was tired. Yeah, for sure. And I, I was really tired. Now, this is a company that, um, you know, my average year was 300,000 miles in an airplane. Yeah. Um, they had six trips to Europe, um, four trips to China, two trips, three trips to, a year to Japan, uh, a couple trips to Australia. Um, that's, that's not even counting, um, Mexico and, and then, um, New York and San Francisco. And so I was always on the road and I woke up one day and I just said, you know, this is a young man's game. And I was, I was only 55. So I get criticized a lot for, um, for retiring too early. Um, but I really, really wanted to move on. And I, um, I had, you know, I had, um, Spent some time. You and I've talked earlier uh, with Bob Buford, who who wrote Halftime, and I just felt like it was my halftime. I felt like, um, honestly, I wanted to do something different. I had been in the industry itself for thirty years, and I wanted to give back in the world in different in a different way. I just did, and part of it was just feeling tired. And Walt, I'm just going to stop you here. So we were you left us at two dollars a share. Where did oh, you yeah. end up at the end? Um, well, we we had diluted the shareholders, so um, it became the, it's sort of the it, best way of looking at it would be the seventy two dollars a share. The best thing we could get to it's synonymous to getting back to seventy two was uh -huh. getting back to thirty. Does that make sense? Yep. yep. Uh, going from two to thirty, so and we ended up merging our company together uh, with another company. Um, a and B, and they took the name Prologis. I retired. Um, the CEO of the of A and B took over. Um, that stock today uh, is trading at about one hundred and thirty dollars a share. Wow. Um, they have one hundred and fifty billion dollars in assets. One of the largest companies in the S and P five hundred. Um, they it, Hamid, who's a, the chair uh, chairman and CEO, likes to say that. He believes that 3% of all global GDP through, moves through a Prologis warehouse, which is just amazing. Stunning. Unbelievable. Um, Unbelievable. They have an incredible footprint. 
So yeah, I mean, it's well, just an amazing story. Congratulations yeah. to you and your team. Um, but okay, so you're back at halftime. You meet up with Bob, the, the infamous legend who changes the course of many uh, of uh, of leaders. You know, tell us where where you ended up going. Oh, uh, you know, I, what I did was um, the the day I left, I I I started. Um, on three corporate boards, um, it, you know, when CEOs of public companies retire, that's the first place that they end up going, which is nice because you spend a part of your time doing it. But at the end of the day, I really wanted to give back. Um, as I mentioned in the beginning, I, I chair the board and I spend a tremendous amount of time with uh, an organization here in Denver that um, um, mentors children in the inner city, urban youth, about what character and leadership is all about. And we started a national organization, and now we're in 15 cities um, throughout the uh, United States under the uh, name of Elevate, Elevate USA. You can look that up. Um, <clears throat> as you know, I wrote a book. I speak. I'm on podcasts. And I really, what I really try to do is I like to speak into the minds of next-gen leaders about what real leadership is, is all about, in my opinion. And I think there's too much emphasis um, given to monetary things. Um, don't get me wrong. We all have to be profitable. Uh, if we're not profitable, we're not viewed in the eyes of people as successful. But I think there's a lot of paths to heaven, if you will, and if, if you look at profitability as heaven. And, and um, uh, I, I, I just think that people need to understand that leading companies with a heart, creating trust, um, and the various things that we just talked about is very important. And any leader, um, any leader can do it. And, um, and I, I just want people to know that you can be successful in some respects, having a turnaround story allows me to do that. Totally. Um, yeah. So I tell the, I tell the story today. I love it. And uh, I'm so grateful for you. Um, and I'm so grateful for your example. Um, and I'm, uh, and I'm thrilled to have had the chance to, to hear it uh and much less be able to share it um and uh obviously you're kind of a a guy that's championing the same direction that we're championing here at rock investments and it's great to collaborate with you in that effort and i also too believe that it's more important than uh returns as character but i think they follow and, and they and they correlate with one another so Absolutely. again uh, thank you so much, Walt, for, for being with us. You're so welcome. It's my, uh, it's absolutely my pleasure, Dan. Thank you.